So we're coming to the uh, close of the third day of the retreat now, and the feeling in the interview groups today was definitely more one of uh, people settling and arriving and starting to uh, find their rhythm with the retreat. But, uh, of course, things are never totally easy on retreat, um, nor are they that easy in life. One of the main pointings of the Buddha is to that difficulty. And this is an article from a recent New Yorker magazine that confirms some of that. According to a study just released by scientists at Duke University, life is too hard. Years of tests, experiments, and complex computer simulations now provide solid statistical evidence in support of old folk sayings that describe life as, quote, a veil of sorrows, a woeful trial, and a kick in the teeth. Authors of the 1,200-page study were hesitant to single out any particular factors responsible for making life tough. A surprise, they say, is that they found so many. Before the study was undertaken, researchers had assumed by positive logic that life could not be that bad. As the data accumulated, however, they provided incontrovertible proof that life is actually worse than most living things can stand. (laughs) Human endurance equals just a tiny fraction of what it should be, given everything it must put up with. In a personal note in the afterword, researchers stated that, statistically speaking, life is, quote, just too much. And as yet, they have no plausible theory how anyone gets through it at all. (laughs) So, at least you're getting through it. You can be happy for that. You're in the probably top 1% of people. But an experience like this really does bring the difficulties of living to light and may make us reflect on the difficulties in our outer life. But particularly in retreat, for me, it gets really simple. There are basically three things that are difficult. There's bodily discomfort. There are all the ways that the mind doesn't do what I want it to do in terms of the meditation, doesn't stay with the object, I get frustrated when it goes away. And third are the ways that uh, we find pain in the mind itself, painful emotions and states of mind. So that's really what I'd like to talk about tonight, is how do we work with the difficulties that come into the mind in terms of our emotions and, and moods, a major source of uh, pain and difficulty on retreat, and in daily life. When I started practice, I was very keen on the idea of enlightenment. And I thought that what enlightenment was going to do was to get rid of all these ways in which my mind caused me trouble. The loneliness, the insecurity, the fear, the sadness, and so on. I thought that some meditation moment would come along and just kind of pluck them all out. And then afterwards, it would be really easy. I have a different view of enlightenment now. I don't think it works quite that way. Now my understanding is that in order to become enlightened, we have to solve the problem of these states of mind 
before we can become enlightened. So I think of this as working to understand and resolve these troublesome qualities of mind independent of enlightenment. This is actually doable. You know, the enlightenment thing where they all get plucked up and ended, I'm not so sure about the nearness of that, for myself at least. But I do know that it's really possible to work directly in relating to these difficult states of mind and find a great deal of freedom in relation to them. And I kind of think of this as the process of becoming enlightened before enlightenment. Because if we can learn to work with every state of mind that comes into our experience and not feel bound up in suffering in relation to it, then we have essentially solved a great deal of the problem of living. We will have opened up so much space and freedom that life will be completely transformed. And this is possible for each one of us. This is from Pema Chodron. In all kinds of situations, we can find out what is true simply by studying ourselves in every nook and cranny, in every black hole and bright spot, whether it's murky, creepy, splendid, spooky, frightening, joyful, or wrathful. We can just look at the whole thing. There's a lot of encouragement to do this, and meditation gives us the method. In the context of retreat, if you carry on long enough, you will experience, as you have in life, a very, very big range of states of mind. I just invite you to think about, over your whole adult life, the most sublime moments that you've known. Just cast your mind back and reflect on what some of those have been in nature or in relationship, in love, through art. And then also I'd invite you to reflect on what the most difficult and painful states of mind that you've known. States of depression or despair, strong fear or rage, loneliness. And through that reflection, we kind of get an idea of the range that is within this human mind, within each human mind. We have the capability to develop in very, very beautiful and sublime ways. The mind also has the capability of creating for us tremendous suffering and agony. And most of us have known quite a wide range of these experiences in our life. What we find happens as we get older is that the mind develops a real fear of going into some of those corners. It seems to me that children don't have so much of that fear when they come into the world, that they're born with a curiosity and a basic trust in life, and whatever happens, to a certain extent, in the emotional realm, they have the ability to go into and feel without holding back. As we get older, we hold back more and more. But it's possible through this exploration, to go into, as Pema Chodron says, every nook and cranny and feel what's there, open ourselves to it again. When we can do that, we gain a lot of confidence. 
Because until we have explored the mind in that way, we get uh, afraid of some parts of it. And we, we seal ourselves off from a certain range of our experience. In doing that, we constrict the mind and contain it too much. So we get a lot of confidence that we can open and relate to any uh, experience that comes along on the level of our, of our mind. So as we expand our uh, capabilities, the mind starts to have less and less edges, less and less boundary. We can move into more and more of those areas without worry, without holding back. And as one of my teachers said, in the mind of the Buddha, there are no more edges. There is nowhere the mind of the Buddha can't go and find a sense of openness and ease. In Buddhist psychology, the Abhidhamma, core text of that psychology, lists 52 states of mind that it says are core factors within us that when combined in different ways make up the whole range of our human experience. Some of these are very beautiful states, states like love and compassion, wisdom, generosity, renunciation, peace, equanimity, mindfulness. Some of them are difficult and painful. Qualities like anger and hatred, despair, anxiety, grief, confusion, sorrow. Some are neutral qualities, not particularly wholesome or unwholesome. As we open up to explore these states, then, our attitude needs to be one not of trying to get rid of them, because that may not happen for a very long time. And I think that it can't happen as long as we are still living in fear of them and want to hold them away. But what we can do is become more and more comfortable with the presence of these qualities. This is again from Pema Chodron. The basic obstacle is that we don't like the way reality is at times and therefore wish it would go away fast. But what we find as practitioners is that nothing ever goes away until it has taught us what we need to know. If we run a hundred miles an hour to the other end of the continent in order to get away from the obstacle, we find the very same problem waiting for us when we arrive. So in the talk tonight, I want to look at some of these uh, state, this range of states of mind to show how we get trapped in suffering and then how we can find freedom in relation to them. In the, t- in the classical Buddhist teachings, this is called the third foundation of mindfulness. The range of uh, the third foundation, the area of it is called citta. This is a Pali word that is sometimes translated as heart, sometimes translated as mind, A good translation for citta is psyche because it includes both emotional qualities and thought processes, cognitive qualities. So just a word on the vocabulary that I'll use. I'll uh, often use uh, the words emotions, moods, and states of mind. All of these are included in citta, this area of meditation, which Rodney introduced us to this morning in the instructions. So just a word on how I use these three. Emotions 
are uh, things we feel fairly strongly. Things like joy and happiness, fear, anxiety. I use moods to cover more or less the same range as emotions, but sometimes moods are a little more subtle, uh, not as strongly felt, maybe not as evident, maybe a little more pervasive. We might say that I had a, a mood of nostalgia, you know, looking at some old photos, something like that. Not quite as punchy, but still present. And then states of mind includes emotions, includes moods, but it also refers to the refined meditative states that develop as we practice. So qualities like mindfulness, peace, concentration, equanimity, uh, mental energy, these are included in the overall category of states of mind as well. We wouldn't really call these qualities emotions, but we can learn to notice when they're present or when they're absent. So some of these emotions and states of mind are wholesome and positive. Some are negative and difficult and painful. I don't want to talk too much about the positive ones for now. We'll talk more as we go through the retreat. But just to say a couple of things. One is, what I'm sure you know, is not to cling to the positive states of mind. They're attractive. They're pleasant. The tendency is to make them want to last. But when we cling to it, we kill it. Uh, There's a nice poem from William Blake, um, which I've forgotten at the moment. (laughs) But it's something about um, who kisses the joy on the rise lives in eternity's sunrise. Oh, that's uh, the first part says, he who binds to himself a joy doth the winged life destroy, but who kisses the joy on the rise lives in eternity's sunrise. So if we grasp these states, the very grasping kills the the joy or the beauty of them. But the other important thing to say about positive states of mind is we often tend to take them for granted and not notice them or really appreciate them. I think there's a reason for this, but I noticed in myself when I was meditating, if a state of contentment or happiness came along in my early years, I'd go, ah, that's what it's supposed to be like. And I didn't stop and reflect, that's a really positive state. And I could see that underneath that, there was this expectation, I should be feeling happy, I should be feeling content. Therefore, when that happened, I didn't make anything of it because it matched my expectation. This expectation is the ego's project. It's not seeing things the way they are. And our practice, our mindfulness practice, is to see what's present. Not what we expect to be there, but just what's present. Or another way to say it is, if we have an expectation, we have a bias. We're biased toward wanting it to be a certain way. The Buddha's seeing doesn't have any bias. Or you could say the bias is zero, or emptiness. So with a bias of zero, if a pleasant state arises, we know that as a pleasant state. And we appreciate it. This is wholesome. This is a fruit of the practice or a fruit of uh, virtue, of the goodness in my life. And we take the time to be grateful that it's there. And when it passes, then we can open to the next thing that comes. As you take the time to notice these wholesome states, that's actually part of the cause for their arising more often. They will return 
you know, as they are appreciated and noticed more and more regularly. So, in working with the emotions that are not so easy, the painful states of mind, two things are really required. One is an attitude shift, away from resisting them, thinking they shouldn't be happening, believing that they're wrong, and wanting them to go away, pushing them away. We have to shift into a state of allowing, as Rodney said in his instructions the other morning, of relax, observe, and allow. The second thing we need is more understanding. When we see how these mind states are put together, and they're all put together through certain mechanisms, then we're not so taken in by them. That which we understand, we can allow without being so troubled about. So as we carefully observe them, how they're manufactured, how they're sustained, how they're released, we start to understand how the mind works. And to the extent we understand it, we're not a slave to it any longer. So the first step to learning from these states of mind, which have the potential for bringing a lot of freedom into our lives, is that we have to know what's present when it's present. We have to know what emotions are there when they're there. This is not uh, always easy, as someone asked in a question uh, this morning. It's not always easy to be certain of what we're feeling. So thoughts may give a clue, body sensations may give a clue. You may have to say for a while, sadness? With a question mark. And just let your identification of it be tentative. That's okay. This whole exploration will teach you to know what you're feeling when you're feeling it and will lead to a clear seeing uh, as it's practiced over time. So this reminds me of an experience I had when I was on retreat here. I was in a three-month course and I was a couple of weeks in and so I was fairly settled and fairly mindful The bell rang at the end of a sitting and I got up to go out to my walking meditation. I was about two weeks into the retreat and I'd been walking in the same place every walking period for those two weeks. And it was down by the uh, parking lot on that grassy area below the parking lot down there. And I'd started to wear a path in the grass because I went there in every walking period. And I went out the back door and I was very mindful of lifting, moving, and placing, lifting, moving, and placing with every step. I felt I was very, very present for my experience, completely mindful. And then I looked down at my walking path and I saw somebody else in it. And I was lifting, moving, placing, but the thought started coming. What are they doing there? Don't they know that's my walking path? Lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. I've been walking in that path every hour for two weeks. They must know it's mine. Lifting, moving, placing, <laughs> lifting, moving, placing. But did I cut in front of them in breakfast this morning? Are they playing mind games with me? Lifting, moving, placing. They're not very developed. If they were more developed, they would have paid attention and known that was my walking space. Lifting, moving, placing. So I walked, lifting, moving, placing, down near that person, found another spot on the grass that turned out to be just as good for walking meditation. And I spent the rest of the walking period there. It went fine. And about 30 minutes in, the thought came to me, oh, 
I'm angry. I had continued sort of the blaming story and it took me 30 minutes of being immersed in it to realize, oh, this is anger. I had been so identified with it while I thought I was being mindful that I couldn't really see the main thing that was happening. So this is in a way the way some of these hindering forces work. They kind of sneak up on us and like low-flying aircraft, they zoom in below our radar and they plant because we get into the story. As long as I was telling myself I was right and this person was wrong and believing it, I couldn't really relate or even see the mental state itself. This is Rodney's statement, do I want to be righteous or do I want to be free? Well, at that point, I wanted to be righteous. But as soon as I could name it as anger, then I could start to relate to it. I brought it into the field of mindfulness. So this is a big step in being aware, working with difficult emotions. Difficult emotions try to turn our attention somewhere else. In this case, it was onto the object of the person that I was upset with. As long as I follow that pointer, I'm lost. But if I can turn the pointer back around to myself and say, what am I feeling, and look directly at the anger, then it becomes workable. So the first step in working with these hindering forces in the mind is to know them for what they are. And that means, if you can, to name them. When we don't name them, we're in their grip, and then that becomes a filter through which uh, we look at the whole world. Everything kind of takes on that color. So once we've named it, the next step is to just feel it directly. Our understanding comes into play when we can let our awareness just connect directly with the experience of that emotion. Feel it in the mind, feel it in the body. Tonight I want to talk particularly about um, five states of mind that... I see come, uh, coming again and again in my life and in the lives of meditators in retreat and out of retreat. And these are desire, aversion or anger, self-judgment, sadness, and fear. These are states that are very, very common in our uh, lives and in our retreats. They're very oppressive when we don't know how to work with them. They're burdensome. They're the source of a lot of human suffering. So with each of these states, I want to suggest that, as has been pointed to earlier, there are really three areas that we need to look to get a complete view of these emotions. One is what I would call the the mind factor or the mood or the mental state itself. Each of these has kind of a coloring in the mind that is the basic flavor of the emotion. The way fear feels different from happiness. Sadness feels different from compassion. There's a mental tone, a color, a mood in the mind that is the primary um, fact of of its existence. The second thing is that anytime one of these emotions is strong, it will also be felt in the body. So take a look and see where in the body it's expressing. If it's fear, it might be a strong contraction in the abdomen. 
If it's happiness, there might be a kind of light, bubbly energy in the chest, uh, rising up. And then the third thing is, take a look at the thought or thoughts that accompany it. All these difficult mind states will have some kind of thought going along with them. Sometimes the thought triggers the mind state, but then the mind state will also trigger more thoughts. And in fact, with the difficult mind states, there will be some underlying belief, as I think was mentioned earlier also, which I would call a storyline. It's usually an unconscious assumption that sustains the emotion. If you take away the storyline, the emotion collapses. So once you look at the mental quality or the color in the mind, the experience in the body, the sensations of it, and the thought, especially the storyline, then you have the whole package of that emotion. When we start to understand how these influence each other, how the thoughts support the emotion, then we start not to be so deceived by them. We start to understand their impact on us, and it's really the understanding that frees us. We just have to observe them and learn from them, and that understanding is transformative. They don't have to be gotten rid of. Just a brief side note, I don't believe that the wholesome states of mind need a storyline for their existence. I think that metta, compassion, joy, love, equanimity uh, are, can be spontaneous. I don't think they need the influence of thought. But by contradistinction, the negative states, I think, do. So let's take a look at some of these in a little more detail. Desires, the first one I mentioned, a really common experience in life and in retreat. It's reaching out for some pleasant experience in the future. This wanting something pleasant to happen. On retreat, we often feel it as a wanting for uh, people that we're missing, places we'd like to be, certain foods or drink or activity that we don't have here. Start to take a look at how it feels when desire comes. You'll start to see that it's kind of a bittersweet quality. Because on the one hand, the mind is bringing in the image of something pleasant. We think about a friend or a partner or a place we've enjoyed being, and that has a kind of positive, uplifting tone to it. It's pleasurable. But at the same time, there's a frustrating quality, or there's a gap, because we don't have it now. The desire force basically says, I want that now. And there's always a gap because what we desire is what's not here. You notice that? We never want what we have. Have you ever wanted a hand at the end of your arm? Not unless it gets injured. So desire always comes with this bittersweet lack of fulfillment. So you may notice a lot of times, if there's a little bit of boredom or a little bit of physical pain in the meditation, often the mind will turn to a pleasant fantasy to try to fill it as though we're, you know, we want to suck on something pleasurable in that moment. But that pleasurableness is never really satisfying because of the gap of not having it. Carol and I were teaching a retreat in Italy a few years ago, which was a wonderful experience. Um, the Italians seem to be very much as we imagine them to be. Uh, they're, they're warm, they talk a lot. Uh, silence was not held in quite the same way that it is held here. 
Uh, certain aspects of the culture we had to modify for our retreat. It was held at a Catholic convent. It was just rented for the retreat. And we had to put in a special request to the kitchen not to put carafes of wine out on the table at lunch because that's what they would have done. And then right outside the dining room, there was a, uh, an espresso machine. And so after the meals, you know, they're feeding that with coins. But I found the Italian yogis to be very uh, forthcoming about their emotions, kind of very in touch with the way they felt and not shy about sharing those with us. So we were a couple of days into the retreat and I had an interview with a young man, very nice young guy, who was having trouble settling in the retreat. And I said, well, what's, what's happening? What's going on? And he said, well, you know, this is August. This is our holiday month. And uh, a group of my friends uh, were going to the Caribbean and invited me to go on a vacation with them. So I had the choice. I could go to the Caribbean on a vacation with those uh, warm waters and the golden sandy beaches, or I could come here on the meditation retreat. And I said, why did you come here? He said, because all the tickets to the Caribbean were sold out. (laughs) So I thought, okay, I can see what's happening here. So the storyline here was that if he'd been in the Caribbean, he would be happy. If he had what he wanted, he would be happy, but because he didn't, he couldn't be. So this is generally, the storyline with desire is something like this. There's this unconscious belief, if I had that, I would be happy now. Now Take a look, See, see if that's true in your experience. There's the belief the thing we want will make us happy in this moment. And not having it, we lack that happiness. So we talked about how the very force of desire brings with it a sense of frustration. It blinds us to looking at the present moment, which is usually fine in and of itself. So I said, what if you looked at the present moment without comparing it to the Caribbean beaches? Maybe it would be okay. So he went off, meditated, came back in a couple of days, and he'd gotten right into the retreat. So when we can let go of the wanting and see the present moment for what it is, often it's not problematic. But the very force of desire makes it seem unfulfilling or problematic. As we start to settle into the retreat, the desire force starts to move into the area of the retreat. So you may find yourself not so much thinking of home anymore, but thinking about your last retreat, or a pleasant sitting from earlier in this retreat. And the force of desire then becomes, I want to feel that pleasant sitting again, that pleasant state of mind, that state of stillness, that concentration. This can be just as much a barrier as desire for something pleasurable in the senses, because it can block our openness to this moment. I started to notice that when that was happening, there was a kind of leaning forward in the body of trying to make some meditation experience happen, make myself still, make myself concentrated, make myself mindful. So I would start to tune into this slight tension that felt like I was leaning forward that indicated to me desire was present. So that might just be an interesting place to look. If you're feeling this kind of leaning forward tension, it might indicate there's something you're wanting, even though it might not always be clear what it is. Check and see if it's about repeating 
some particular experience. And then the release from that is the willingness to settle back. Oh, just this moment. One of my friends is a a greed type. It's a type of personality in in Buddhist psychology that uh, has a lot of mind moments of wanting, of desire. So he has a line that he uses for himself a lot. When desires come, he says, is there anything truly lacking in the present moment? Is there anything truly lacking? So check that out and see. Often there's not. It's just the force of desire. The other side of that is the force of aversion, the not liking or pushing away. This is the general term we use for negativity or disliking our experience, but it has a lot of different aspects. We could talk about um, the forms of desire as including ill will, anger, hatred, impatience, frustration, irritation, fear, sadness, grief, depression, despair, resistance, blame, resentment, and there are more. Sound familiar? Usually in retreat, people experience quite a range of these kinds of mind states. So take a look. When aversion is in the mind, how does it feel? There's a resistive quality. Often the body comes uh, into some strong state of contraction. It's kind of the sign of resistance is not wanting what's happening. So we tighten up. The storyline in aversion is basically, I can't be happy because this is happening. This particular unpleasant thing is present, so I can't be happy. And then as, we, as that storyline settles in and we believe in it, there comes this kind of negative tone in the mind that colors our whole experience. The Buddha was uh, walking with some monks in the forest. They came to a clearing. And as they were standing there, a jackal, a small animal, ran into the clearing. And it stood there for a minute, and then it ran into the hollow of a tree trunk. It lay down in the hollow of the tree trunk, and then it ran out and uh, stayed in the shade for a few minutes and lay down. And then it didn't stay lying very long, but it ran off again into the forest. And the Buddha said, monks, did you see that jackal? Standing in the clearing, it wasn't content. Lying down in the tree hollow, it wasn't content. Standing in the shade, it wasn't content. It blamed its suffering on standing, on lying, on uh, walking. It blamed its suffering on the clearing, on the tree hollow, on the brush. The problem was with none of these, he said. The problem was that jackal had mange. That's a little what it's like with aversion. It sort of takes over our mind and everything becomes unsatisfactory. Everything is not quite good enough. So the line you could use for this as an aversive type is, is there anything truly wrong with the present moment? Is there anything truly wrong with it? One of the main forms of aversion, of course, is the phenomenon of anger, as in my uh, walking meditation experience. The storyline of anger is usually, you're wrong and I'm right. 
So the sense of uh, righteousness is an integral part of what anger is about. As we listen to those blaming thoughts again and again, the anger gets stronger. It's like we're adding more fuel to the fire with each blaming thought. Then the feeling of anger in the body usually is also contracted and also kind of burning. When you're really angry, you can see why the color red is used to illustrate anger because it feels like the body's almost on fire. Now it may be that the thoughts that we're thinking about wrongdoing have some validity. It may be that somebody did something that was really unskillful or wrong ethically. But in order to really look at anger completely, we need to look at the suffering that we have when we carry it. The Dalai Lama tells a story about uh, being visited by a monk that he'd known in Tibet before 1959 when he fled the, uh, the occupation. This monk had stayed behind and had been imprisoned for a number of years and had finally gotten out of prison and escaped to India. And the Dalai Lama received him and asked about his time there. And the monk said, um, well, I felt that I had been in danger very often. And the Dalai Lama said, uh, well, I, I can understand that. Uh, do you mean you were in danger of being tortured? And the monk said, oh, well, yes, I was tortured. But what I really mean is I was in danger of becoming angry. That would, that would have been far more serious. I really find the Tibetan monks and nuns incredibly inspiring in their ability to maintain that balance of mind in the midst of really, really painful situations. So the Dalai Lama said afterwards that before, when he lived in Tibet, he had thought this monk was rather ordinary. But now he said he had to reevaluate his opinion of him because he saw he was quite an advanced practitioner. So as we get angry, the important place to tune in again is what does it feel like in our mind and body? And to feel that quality of suffering that's in anger. I found that I was really only able to let go of anger by tuning into the suffering that it was bringing me. That's what encouraged me to let go of it again and again. And I've gotten better at it as I practiced more with it. It's said in the tradition that becoming angry is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to get sick. It doesn't happen. It's also compared to picking up a hot coal to throw at somebody, but we get burned first. When anger gets directed to ourselves, it turns into self-judgment. This often comes up on retreat as we start with comparing mind to compare ourselves to others who are here. You know, if you ever open your eyes in the middle of a meditation period, it looks like everybody else is a Buddha. The hall looks so still, and you just think, wow, they're having such good meditations. And I wish my meditation was like that. I must be the only one here whose mind is all over the place. And of course it's not true. If somebody looked at you, they'd probably think you were a Buddha. But we often tend to bring up these comparing thoughts when we're in the middle of, of retreat. And then the comparing thoughts get a little 
off-center or a little irrational. I was talking with a, a student who is a therapist. She was talking about this comparing mind. And one of her clients had uh, left her and decided to terminate the therapy sessions. And her first thought was, I understand that. I wasn't the right fit for that person. And that was a rational thought, and that was a completely acceptable thought for her. But then the next thought was, I don't have enough compassion for him. Actually, I'm not a very warm person, is what it turned into. And then it turned into, I've actually never loved anyone and no one's ever loved me. And by that time, the thought was this huge burden. So start to notice when these judging or comparing thoughts come, that there may be a grain of rational truth in them, but then we tend to blow them up in a way that they're not true anymore. And it's the falsehood and the slight belief in the falsehood that really weighs on us. So when we're judging ourselves, the storyline in that is something like, I'm not good enough, or I'm not lovable, I'm not good enough to be loved or to deserve to be loved. It's some underlying fear like that. And when we believe in that, we kind of crumple in on ourselves. We don't feel we can really come out because we feel what's inside is not, is not very worthy. This feeling of worthlessness seems to be really, really widespread in our culture. It seems like an epidemic in uh, the West these days. The Dalai Lama was meeting with a group of Western Buddhist teachers a few years ago in Dharamsala. There were about 20 teachers meeting with His Holiness over a few days. They were asking for his advice on how to work with this problem, and he said, I don't understand what you mean. And the translator went back and forth a number of times, and the Dalai Lama couldn't get what this problem was even about. Because he said, in Tibet, they don't have this problem. And finally, he went around, he, got, he started to get some sense of it. He went around to each of those 20 Buddhist teachers and he said, Do you, have you felt this? Do you understand this? Have you felt this? And every one of them said, yes, they had. And yet, from his knowledge, it was not there in Tibetan culture at all. So this is something as Westerners we, also, we often have to work with. And it can become stronger, can become self-hatred or self-loathing. Shortly after I ordained in, in Thailand, and this is quite a number of years ago, I was going out to practice in a, a forest center out in the country near Chiang Mai in northern Thailand. And my preceptor, the older monk who had ordained me, asked me to stop in at a branch monastery of his that was in the town of Chiang Mai. He said, it'll be interesting for you to stay there. It'll break your journey and you can get to know this other Western monk who's there. So I stopped there for a few nights and spent time with this other Western monk who'd been in robes about 12 or 13 years at that point. And I came to like him a lot. He was a big fellow. He had a big laugh. And I thought a very big heart, very warm-hearted person. And uh, the first day I was there, we went out on alms round together, which monks do in the morning. He had the biggest begging bowl I've ever seen. And he, he had a stomach girth to match it. So his bowl literally was probably bigger than this bell. So he walked ahead because he was senior. I walked behind him and then two novice monks followed us. And I thought, why are the novice monks coming? Because they don't usually come and beg for food. 
But I just kept my mouth shut and followed him. So we walked down this street, and it was a neighborhood where he was very well known. He was very well loved in the community because he was a very warm guy, and he received visitors a lot, counseled people on their practice and their lives and their children. People really liked him in the community. So there were uh, lay people lined up on the street as we came to offer him food. And because I was there, I got food also. So we filled up his bowl in a fairly short period of time, filled up my bowl, and I thought, walk's over, we'll go back to the monastery. But he slipped down a, an alley, and the two novice monks came, opened up their robes to show a big plastic bag hanging from their shoulder. So we took the little uh, plastic bags of food, which is how they offer it, out of our bowls and filled up the novices' plastic bags. They folded up their robes. Our bowls were empty. We hit the streets again. <laughs> so we filled up again and filled up the novices. And then we collected more. And then we took all that back to the monastery. So we fed ourselves. We fed uh, some other monks. We fed, fed a number of novices, a number of nuns. And finally, we fed the temple dogs. All basically out of the love and appreciation that those people had for this Western monk. He was so well-liked in the community. So I thought, wow, you know, he really had a very fortunate upbringing and a pleasant time. He, you know, he's such a warm guy. And as we were hanging out and we got to talking, he said, you know, I had to work a lot with this problem of self-hatred. It took me the first nine years that I was in robes to work through my self-hatred. And I was amazed because he had so much metta, so much loving kindness, and so much warmth. But it hadn't been easy for him. So one of the other states that's difficult to work with is a state of sadness. I often touch this in the silence and the solitude of retreats. Sometimes we hold back from opening to that sadness or touching it. Sometimes there's this underlying fear if I open to it, it will take me over and never go away. I could drown in that sadness and never come up again. And the storyline or the unconscious belief with sadness is something like, I can't be happy because I've lost something. I've lost a relationship or a part of my life or a way I used to feel or some situation. And I can't be happy because of that loss. So we hold back from uh, being able to feel it. But as long as we keep the sadness at a distance, it's perpetuated. The way that any of these states can be released as kind of chronic states of mind is for us to open, and then they can pass through. The reason it's safe to open to all of these states is that they are impermanent, like every other conditioned phenomenon. Everything that arises is also of the nature to pass away, one of the central teachings of the Buddha. Emotions are also impermanent, and they're just kind of waiting to manifest it. So a lot of what it feels like to me is these feelings that we've held back and haven't opened to. All they want to do is come onto center stage, tell their song or dance or whatever it is, have us hear it, and then they'll exit stage left. But as long as we can't give them that space and really listen to their story, they keep expressing their frustration. It's like a child 
who has a story to tell and we won't give them the space to listen. They won't, then they won't shut up. The last of the mind states I wanted to touch on is the state of fear. This can be a powerful one and was for me uh, the strongest hindrance I had to work with in the early years of my meditation practice, but was therefore also one of the greatest sources of learning for me. It was just part of my conditioning when I came into practice. There was a certain layer of fear in my mind that I had to go through. So sometimes it would come up quite strongly in retreat. It's not like this for everyone. I just had a certain conditioning toward fear. Not everyone does. So at times I would be very gripped uh, by this fear for, for quite a while. And I understood the instructions to go into it and feel it. And I would do that again and again and again. And slowly, slowly, over years of touching it, it started to really reduce. got smaller and smaller and smaller. With fear, one of the difficulties is that when it comes, we're usually more afraid of the fear. You know, we, we, We're afraid when it comes, and then the presence of it scares us even more. So it tends to escalate. What we need to do is have the willingness just to open and feel it. For me, the way in was sensations in the body. When I would feel afraid, I would feel the contraction in my stomach. I'd feel the fluttery sensations. Uh, in my chest, maybe I'd feel some sweat under my arms, and I would start to ask myself, are these sensations bearable? Can I stand this part of the experience of fear? And the answer was that they were all bearable. I could bear those sensations. Then I would start to look, what about the mental tone of fear? It's a kind of wanting to move away from. Is that bearable? And I finally said, yeah. I can bear that too. And then the storyline with fear is pretty simple. It's something like, this moment is bearable, but the next moment isn't going to be. So it's a future projection that tends to catch us. Again, when we come back into the present, we can undercut that storyline. So after making this effort to open to fear again and again and again and again, many, many times, then it started to become much easier for me. At some point in my practice, I reached a level of equanimity with fear that I honestly did not care if it came again or not. If fear arose, that was fine with me. If it stayed, that was fine with me. If it went away, that was also okay. When I got to that level of equanimity with fear, I sort of felt I'd solved its problem. Because it's not that... um, Fear hasn't arisen again since then and made me feel uncomfortable, but I now know absolutely how to work with it and how to open to it, at least in the range of experiences I've had so far. Again, there could be something even stronger that will you know, outstrip my equanimity, but I feel now I know the way to work. So the real key, I think, in understanding the approach to all these different states is to trust that they're workable. We have it within us to understand them and to accept them just the way they are. It's really this trust and the touching of them that transforms our experience of them, that really gives the freedom from them. So originally I thought the way to transform this state 
would be to get rid of it and replace it by an awake state. I thought that that's what had to happen. But what I learned is I could wake up in the middle of those states. So in the middle of desire or sadness or fear, I could bring about an awakened state of mind. I could bring mindfulness and interest and curiosity and close awareness of it. That's what started to transform it. So I want to offer you a little acronym for how to approach, in a kind of awakened way, these difficult states of mind. It was developed by a colleague of ours, and the acronym is RAIN, R-A-I-N. So there are four steps. The R stands for recognition. The first step in relating with one of these states is to recognize what it is that we're feeling. This is very important because the, the accurate perception of the emotion in some way creates some space around it. When we know, oh, this is anger, or this is fear, or this is unhappiness, it unsticks it in some important way. So aligning our perception with what is actually going on is the first important step. If you're not sure what it is, name it with a question mark. Make your best approximation. Over time, it will become easier to know. The A stands for acceptance. Some people like the word allowing. It basically means not that you have to do something, but that you stop resisting. We drop our tendency to push it away and just allow it to be as it is. This is really challenging. With states that are difficult to bear, this won't come the first time, or maybe even the second or the third. But if you move in that direction again and again and again, that acceptance will start to come in. There's a way to tell if you've really, really accepted a state. And that is to ask yourself the question, would it be okay with me if this state lasted the rest of my life? If the answer to that is no, then more acceptance is possible. And with my fear, I got to that state where I could really answer that question, yes. And that's when I felt my equanimity with the fear was adequately developed. So acceptance is really a key and a turning point. The I stands for interest or investigation. If we can become interested in a difficult experience, it totally shifts our relationship to it. It picks up our energy. It gives us a sense of confidence. It, ex- it expresses our willingness to learn. And that puts us in an open frame of mind. So we start to get curious. Oh, when anger is here, where do I feel it in my body? What's that sensation? Is it a burning? Is it a contraction? How far can I feel it in my body? What kinds of thoughts come? when I'm angry? Do I feel blaming? How does that make, if I'm blaming someone else's wrong, how does that make me feel? The investigation starts to open up the wisdom, the learning, the understanding of how the state works. And the last of the uh, letters is N, which stands for non-identification. This really means take out the I or my take out the sense of self or ownership of the emotion. So in noticing uh, when we're feeling angry, we could say, oh, that's my anger, or I'm really angry, 
Or we could simply say, anger is present. So in this approach, just say anger is present. Just note anger. The I, the my, those are extra. They're not needed, and they generally add a layer of confusion and burden. So try seeing these states without claiming them as I or my. Now, Carol's mentioned, I think, a couple of times this short phrase from Ajahn Sumedho, something like, wanting is like this, or anger is like this. This little phrase really also encapsulates these four points. Let's take a phrase, anger is like this. The anger word is the recognition piece, naming it for what it is. The is is really an expression of allowing. That's what's true in this moment. That's what I need to open to and allow. Like this invites investigation. Oh, what's anger like? Let me feel it. Let me see it. Let me observe it. And you'll notice in that phrase, anger is like this, there's no I or my. So we also have the non-identification. So either of these approaches can bring in this kind of awakened relationship to the state, and it's waking up that starts to release it and transform its hold on us. When we see them in this way, we find what we're actually doing is changing a moment of suffering into a moment of awakening. We bring forth the awakened qualities of mindfulness, energy, investigation, confidence, friendliness, allowing, acceptance. So moment after moment, we learn to transform our suffering into awakening. And in that, we transform it into freedom. We find our freedom not by trying to get rid of these states, because that basically doesn't work. 98% of the time, it just doesn't work. But we transform it by coming into awakeness right in the middle of these difficulties. So I just want to close with a quotation from the Tibetan. This is called The Four Blessings of Gampopa. Gampopa was a disciple of Milarepa, a great yogi in Tibet. And these are expressed as a supplication or a prayer. And you can think of the prayer being to the universe, uh, to the Dharma, to the teacher, to the Buddha, whoever you would like. But these are the four prayers or blessings of Gampopa. Grant your blessing so that my mind follows the Dharma. Grant your blessing so that my Dharma practice becomes the path. Grant your blessing so that the path clarifies confusion. Grant your blessing so that confusion dawns as wisdom. Let's just sit for a moment together, please. Grant your blessing so that my mind follows the Dharma, so that my practice becomes the path, so that the path clarifies confusion, so that confusion dawns as wisdom.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.